0: the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails.
1: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
0: There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. I am here, as always, with my producer, Mike. Mike, how are you doing tonight?
3: I'm doing well, Bridget. Thanks for having
0: me back. It is nice to see you, as always. And here's what you may have missed this week on the Internet. So, are y'all still using threads? If you are... There's a chance that you might actually be there alone, because after a surge in downloads, while Twitter was crapping the bed like we told you about a few weeks ago, Threads' daily active user count dropped from 49 million to 23.6 million in the span of a week. We're getting this information from SimilarWeb, which is a firm that tracks web traffic. They're only reporting Android data, but it's pretty likely that this is the same across operating systems, and it still paints a pretty qualitative picture. Here's what they found. On its very best day, July 7th, the same day that Twitter was announcing rate limits and all of that nonsense, Threads had more than 49 million daily active users on Android worldwide. That's about 45% of the usage of Twitter, which had more than 109 million active Android users that day. But by Friday, July 14th, Threads was down to 23.6 million active users, or about 22% of Twitter's audience. Usage in the United States, which saw the most activity, peaked at about 21 minutes of engagement with the app on July 7th. But by July 14th, that was down to a little over six minutes. So, like, not really a lot of engagement. In the first two full days that Threads was generally available, Thursday and Friday, web traffic to Twitter.com was down 5% compared with the same days of the previous week. Although, traffic bounced back for the most recent seven days of data, and it's still down 11% year over year. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like... I was pretty skeptical about threads. Mike, have you been using it?
3: You know, uh, just like everybody else, I checked it out when it became available. Uh, and it seemed okay. It was sort of interesting. It was like a new thing. And there were a bunch of people posting. It was pretty chaotic. I didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, there were like a, like every account that I followed on Instagram was suddenly on this totally new platform and there were a bunch of other accounts that I didn't follow. It was okay. It was like kind of interesting. Uh, I will be honest that I haven't really gone back after those first initial couple days. Um, so I don't know. I checked it out and that was it.
0: Yeah. I feel similarly, I think on the show, the last time that we talked about it, I was sort of, on the fence on whether I was going to try it or not. I really took issue with the fact that if you tried it and didn't like it, that you had to delete your whole Instagram account in order to delete it outright because it's linked to your Instagram. So I really took issue with that kind of philosophically. But ultimately, I'm only human, and I caved and tried it. And I just, it just like wasn't for me. Maybe it'll change. It just wasn't for me. And one of the reasons why I think it just like wasn't calling my name one of my favorite tech journalists, Morgan Sung, really hit the nail on the head. So Morgan had this really interesting take that really rang true for me that threads will never be the new platform where all of us are spending our time because it is run by Facebook. And no, that it's not just because we all hate Mark Zuckerberg, which of course we do, it's because Facebook meta has notoriously puritanical policies around things like nudity and sexuality. More on that in just a moment, but It's not a platform where you can really get weird. And I think that a big part of what draws people into platforms, what makes platforms a place where it's like interesting or exciting to be, is weirdos. And part of attracting weirdos is kind of having more open policies around nudity and sexuality. That's what makes these platforms pop. Threads, on the other hand, has this very kind of millennial cringe style that is also this very brand safe style. Like Morgan argues that brand safe in 2023 has become the sort of 2014 BuzzFeed style millennial cringe internet discourse speak. Uh, no shade to anybody who uses that because I certainly was talking like that in 2014 on the internet. But when we were all talking like that and saying things like doggo and I did a thing, brands essentially swooped in and co-opted that. And so that kind of speaking online is now synonymous with brand-safe speaking. And Threads is very much a place that is about being brand-safe. It's one of the reasons why on the very first day where people were getting on Threads, the first people there were representing brands and making their little brand-safe, brand-specific internet jokes. And yeah, I just think that It's one of the reasons why it doesn't feel like the platform for me and maybe one of the reasons why it's experiencing a dip in usership. And so, yeah, it's just like every time I log in, it's just brands saying adulting or I did a thing. Again, no shade to anybody who speaks like that because that is definitely how I was speaking on the Internet circa 2014.
3: Yeah, it's so funny you say that. I'm like so curious what millennial cringe speak is. I... I'm not sure and I'm suddenly like hyper aware of everything that I might have to say here but one of the most prolific accounts on my threads timeline is uh, Shake Shack like Shake Shack was just posting the hell out of threads and it was so many you know mediocre burger jokes I love Shake Shack by the way (laughs) I will eat their burgers but like the jokes were like mediocre not once did they say that they could has cheeseburger. and <laughs> what, a, what a missed layup. <laughs> it was like such a miss, you know, like that right there. I'm that's probably it. I'm not going back to threads.
0: Yeah. You know, no one is going to ever get me to say a bad word about Shake Shack. If Shake Shack is like doing something problematic, truly, I don't want to know because that's how much I love their burgers. You know, I think that Morgan Sung might like be onto something about this idea of the puritanical anti-sexuality, anti-sex unsexy vibe over at Meta kind of being the thing that means that threads will never really take off. More on that, because let me ask you something. Why did Facebook reject ads about women's sexual health? Well, that is exactly what a group of congressional Democrats are urging the Federal Trade Commission to look into after a report from the nonprofit from the Center for Intimacy Justice found that Meta is rejecting sexual health advertisements targeted at women while allowing those aimed at men a possible violation of federal law. This does not surprise me. Meta is... A deeply unsexy company with deeply unsexy policies. None of this surprises me. According to the Center for Intimacy Justice, their report found that of the 60 health businesses studied that serve women's health and the health for people of diverse genders, all of them, all, 100%, had experienced Facebook rejecting an advertisement at some point. Even more concerning... Facebook was also found to have suspended half of the survey respondents' advertising accounts. Now, Meta flagged these ads as containing adult content or promoting adult products and services. Nine months after publishing the report, Meta published changes to its sexual health advertising policies, newly stating that advertisers can run ads that promote sexual health, wellness, and reproductive products and services. Now, in this update, Meta said that they changed their rules to include more examples of ads that they are saying now are allowed, such as products addressing the effects of menopause, pain relief during sex, and sex education. But to be clear, it basically sounds like this nonprofit complained and pointed it out, and only then did it force Meta to make this change. And even though Meta made this change, The Center for Intimacy Justice is saying that even though Meta did change the rules, Meta is still, quote, persistently and systemically rejecting advertisements aimed at women and people of underrepresented genders while permitting those targeted toward men. So now Senators Hirano, Warren, Klobuchar, Welch, and Representative Adam Schiff are urging the FTC to force Meta to investigate how algorithmic bias in its ads review process maybe contributing to discrimination, and to dedicate more resources and team members to monitoring for potential discrepancies. This does not surprise me at all. I think that we, like, live in a culture that is very much, like, has a double standard around sexuality. Uh, Men as, as, I'm sorry, they just, like, do seem to be biased toward men's sexuality, which is what Jackie Rotman, the head of the Center for Intimacy Justice, says, too. Rotman says... While Meta's rules prohibit ads that promote products that focus on sexual pleasure or enhancement, such as sex toys or sexual enhancement products, they explicitly allow ads promoting sexual and reproductive health or wellness, such as erectile dysfunction products or those that prevent premature ejaculation. Rotman goes on to say, we believe that premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction ads should be allowed as an important and valuable part of sexual health. But we think that those are clearly about pleasure and that there's a discrepancy and just discriminatory aspects of how Facebook is writing its sexual pleasure policy. So it just sounds like there is absolutely a double standard around how both society and in turn Facebook are regulating whose sexual wellness is acceptable and whose isn't. We'll actually speak to one of my personal heroes, Cindy Gallup of Make Love Not Porn later this season about this very thing, about how Facebook and our social media landscape more broadly really marginalize any conversation about women's sexuality that is related to pleasure.
3: There is some irony, I think, of Facebook, which kind of like owns the internet they're definitely collecting the most rents on the internet maybe them or google but like having this intense gatekeeping against any sort of sexual content even sexual content that many people might agree is like healthy sexual content and not necessarily like illicit so like they're sitting on top of the internet collecting all the rents while at the same time the internet was like built on porn and like perverts and weirdos uh I don't know. There's something there. I don't know exactly what it is.
0: So in addition to Cindy Gallup's amazing conversation, which I can't wait for folks to hear because she's amazing. We have an episode with Vice's Samantha Cole, who wrote a book about how porn and sexuality built to the Internet. So you are exactly right. You'll hear that episode later in the season. Maybe we'll move it up because it's so timely at this point. But yeah, the Internet as an infrastructure would not exist if not for sexuality, pornography, sex work. All the naughty things that we love to explore. And it's interesting to me that Facebook is so puritanical, but only as it pertains to policing and marginalizing the expression of pleasure and sexuality of women and people who are non-binary or of diverse genders. If it's men talking about erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation, well, that's not about sexual pleasure. That's about health. But if it's about women or people of diverse genders and how we get down, no, 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 no. That can be marginalized. That can be policed. Completely agree. Cannot wait to have more conversations about this later in the season. Let's take a quick break. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, Are back. Speaking of women on the internet, we talked in a previous roundup about how women make up a big chunk, a little more than half, of the video game playing community. So, in that episode, I make the point that video game companies really need to catch up and make games that represent the reality of their audiences, which are a lot of women. And it sounds like EA Sports is kind of doing that. They just came out with FC24. EA Sports' first post-FIFA football game. If folks don't know, FIFA, like, was the game. Like, many an argument was had in my household about the game FIFA. Let's just put it that way. We'll We'll leave it at that. FC24 lets male and female players play with and against each other in ultimate team mode, which is the game's most popular mode. Now, IGN reports that within this mode, women players are not at a natural disadvantage. If a male and a female player have the same attributes or stats, the same height, the same mass, governed by weight, then the outcomes on the virtual pitch are exactly the same. Attributes are relative to the competition the player plays in. EA vice president and executive producer John Shepard told IGN that this mode and sort of like the way that gender is displayed in this game was something that they really had a deep think about. He says, We have a vision of connecting not just the 150 million fans we have now, but a billion fans. We want this game and this brand, this club, this ecosystem to welcome everybody. In terms of our decision around how we're integrating women's football into Ultimate Team, we feel really strongly about that. He also says that EA as a company is fully focused on combating toxicity in gaming and understanding what is happening in gameplay in terms of Are people being toxic? Are they harassing women? And that kind of thing. But guess who is not happy? Can you guess, Mike? Dickholes? Dickholes. Yeah, some gamer guys. Honestly, it's probably those very same guys who were annoyed about the report about how many women are gaming. IGN reports that following the reveal of FC24, Some within the FIFA community claimed that mixing women and men in Ultimate Team was unrealistic and in opposition to what they considered, quote, authentic football simulation. The problem, these dickhole players said, was that they felt that women would struggle to compete with men in real life so that in the gameplay, they should also be struggling to compete with men. Some men said that women players should be restricted to their own modes within Ultimate Team or suggested that they don't want women players in Ultimate Team at all. Some even threatened to boycott FC24 entirely. Listen, I don't play this game. Like I don't I have not I have not played FIFA in many years, but it does sound like they really thought deeply and intentionally about how male and female players would match up against each other in this game. According to IGN, in general, FC 24's women players will probably be shorter and lighter than the male players. While stats for both attributes affect gameplay, like a tall player can reach balls, shorter players cannot, a high-mass player will out-muscle a low-mass player, etc., women players are expected to hold their own in Ultimate Team. As someone from EA put it, it's not just about being tall and being strong. The core message is here. If everything is equal they will play the same way. And it kind of reminded me how... Did you ever play Mario 2? That, like, very weird Mario game?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we could have a whole show about that, but
2: we won't
0: go into it. When you play Mario 2, I have always found that Peach, the princess, is the best player because she's got the skirt. She can float. And so, like, you know, all the players, you've got Luigi, you've got Mario, you've got Peach, you've got... Is it the the other one, the... the, um, Turtle guy. I can't remember his name, but they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's not like Peach is the worst player. And in fact, I believe that Peach is like the best player if you're like serious about beating the game because she can float on that skirt. And so I kind of like that EA is saying like, well, it's not just that if you're a male player, you're automatically going to be better because that's really not how it works. And it's
3: particularly notable that this is the fantasy mode. I forget the name of the mode, uh, what did they call it? Ultimate? Ultimate Team. Uh, You know, I don't play this game, but I I have played played it in the past. But in this Ultimate Team, you know, the EA uh, representatives point out that, like, this is a fantasy mode where you have women and men players competing against each other in these fantasy teams that you can create by combining players across teams, much like fantasy football or fantasy baseball or, you know, whatever people might want to play. And if you want to play the like hyper-realistic version, where it's like the actual team and their roster of 2023 versus this other team, you can do that. But also there is this other mode that is fantasy. And yet the people who are opposed to this and somehow are like making themselves vocally known as opposed to a video game's fantasy mode because that's the important <laughs> thing in their life. Uh, you know, they they can't even entertain the idea that in a fantasy s- scenario, men and women would be playing each other. That should really tell you something.
0: That's such a good point. And like, it's just fantasy mode. And EA points this out. If like, nobody is forcing anyone into mixed gender gameplay if they don't wanna, if that's not how they wanna play. Because kickoff mode, which as you said, represents the real teams or the real clubs and does not allow for a player to have mixed gender matches is right there. So if you were like, I hate this, you don't have to play it that way. A way to play it without mixed gender teams, if you like are so limited in your imagination in that way is right there. These are just people who are haters to get so mad and to be like, ah, we're going to boycott EA because we don't think women have any place in our game. Hello, the fucking U.S. Women's National Team is great. Like, people are excited about women players. And if you don't like it, fine. You don't have to play it. But to to make this much of a stink really tells you all that you need to know. Speaking of making a stink, I got a little bit of a stink to make about something.
3: Oh, you, you got a yellow card? <laughs>
0: Ooh, that's good. Look, look who knows sports references. I don't, so I don't actually even get the reference. I, I, I've always wanted to be the kind of like girl who knows about sports and is like, oh yeah, the thing. I have no idea, but I'm gonna take that as a sports reference and keep it going. It was, yeah, it was okay. a sports
2: reference.
0: Well, let's talk about Kemba Walden. Kemba Walden is one of the few Black women leaders in cybersecurity which, as we know, is a field traditionally dominated by white guys. She has been serving as the acting White House National Cyber Director since February. She's been doing a kick-ass job. She is very qualified. She has endorsements from all the right people. But she was informed this week that her current role cannot and will not become a permanent one within the White House. Why? Well, because she has personal debt, just like Most of us do, just like I do, just like most people listening do. It's a totally normal thing, even though, to be clear, she has personal debt and she pays her bills on time. Apparently, people close to the matter said that senators would give her a rough time during her confirmation process and essentially got her to pull out of this process to become a permanent member of the administration before she even started. So Walden and her husband are both solidly middle class. Her husband is also a public servant, just like she is. He works as a lawyer for the Commerce Department. They have two little kids who are both in private school and a mortgage, presumably in the Washington, D.C., like DMV area, which is very expensive. The Washington Post quoted a family friend saying they don't have generational wealth. They've taken on debt to put their kids in private school. And most importantly, they pay their bills. If the requirement to take a job like this is that you have to be independently wealthy, then it will be a poorer place because you'd be cutting out a lot of great talent. So because of all this, Walden withdrew from consideration for the nomination for this job to become permanent. And that does seem to be a little bit out of the ordinary. The Washington Post talked to an expert in what they called the, quote, arcane rules and practices of presidential nominee vetting, who said that passing over a qualified candidate due to personal debt is unusual. They said, I've never heard of that one before. If she's actually paying the debt or hasn't defaulted on the debt, I think it will be very unusual to be held up because of that. Now, I know a little bit about this process and how it works because I once tried and failed, might I add, (laughs) to get clearance to join the Obama administration. I had a job offer I had to go through the vetting process and I did not make it through. It was a whole thing. We don't have to get into it now, but it was a whole thing. I'll put it that way. Uh, So Walton already has her security clearance where they vet your credit and your income and your debt to make sure that you don't have unusually high debts that someone like a foreign adversary could use that might make you vulnerable to being blackmailed. Really curious how that worked out with some other prominent White House figures, but I digress. Uh, so- um, I think
3: one of them was just convicted of like seven felonies uh, today.
0: He wasn't trying to work in cybersecurity, was he?
3: No, he wasn't. He was just trying to overthrow the government.
0: Okay, Phew. thank God. <laughs> just, oh, just that? No, no big deal. So I have a lot to say about this. I think that having debt and like, Working to pay it off and like doing what you can to manage it. It's just the story of being someone in America who is not independently wealthy. It is not unusual to have debt. It is like a totally commonplace circumstance that I think that most people listening, I myself definitely am in this in this camp. It is a it is a not uncommon circumstance. It's, and I feel like saying that if somebody has a personal debt is disqualifying for the for a White House administration position you're basically saying that only rich people should be in consideration for presidential administrations. But I think it's more than that. I think that there is an unstated race and gender aspect to this because she is a Black woman. I should say the person being vetted to become the permanent national cybersecurity director in her place is a Black man. But the research is very clear and also from my anecdotal evidence as well, Black women face a very different landscape than their Black male counterparts because they are not just Black, they are Black and also women. So they're up against both gender and racial dynamics. And the Biden administration, I have to give them credit. They have been really great about making it a point to nominate Black women and women of color and other marginalized people in this administration. And that is awesome. They deserve praise for that. But I personally feel like they have not done enough to explicitly call it out when those people that they nominate for those positions are completely unfairly raked over the coals and held to a completely different standard to everyone else who has been nominated. A great example is when Supreme Court Justice Jackson went through her confirmation process, right? We had people like Josh Hawley essentially calling her a pedophile for doing her job. These very unfair, disgusting dangerous attacks and the administration they definitely publicly championed these black women but they never came out and clearly said she is facing these attacks because she is a black woman she would not be facing attacks like this if she were not a black woman and i just feel some kind of way about that right like you can't champion the leadership of marginalized people particularly black women unless you are also going to create the conditions so that those Black women that you are championing can actually do their jobs, face an equal playing field, and lead. I think the White House quietly flagging that she will not be confirmed because she has personal debt is not doing that, and they need to do better if they are actually meaningfully going to support the leadership of Black women. It's absolutely one thing to say, support Black women, listen to Black women, Black women lead, It is another to create the conditions where black women can meaningfully have an equal playing field that they need to lead.
3: Absolutely. Black women should expect that their allies in, you know, wherever they are, including democratic administrations, would support them and not hold them to a double standard, right? Like, we know that there is a double standard for black women in so many areas of society. And, and maybe like double standard is not even accurate, right? Because of the intersectionality of the whole thing. Maybe it's like a triple or quadruple standard. Black women should expect more. And this is a disappointing story. I, in the case of Justice Jackson, I guess, you know, it's an interesting situation where she was ultimately confirmed. And one could argue that the Biden administration's support port for her maybe it was strategic that they didn't call out the racism and sexism of it in the interest of getting her confirmed but allowing racist sexist attacks to happen and not calling them out has its own risks as well and for folks who are competing for appointments at a lower status level than supreme court justice uh it, it probably really hits home
0: I mean, you make a good point. I'm not totally convinced of it, but I see where you're coming from. I think that it's really tough. I think that as people who are traditionally marginalized, whether you're a Black woman, a white woman, a queer person, a trans person, someone who is not always represented, I think we have this really weird bind where we know we're experiencing this stuff We feel it. We're very aware. I'm sure that Justice Jackson knew exactly why her confirmation process was so difficult. I'm sure that she's, this is not the first time she's experienced that. And, but we are supposed to never talk about it. Like, we are supposed to endure this, know exactly what it is, be crystal clear about what is happening, but it's like rude or beyond the pale to talk about it. And so what we actually need is allies and people in our corner and people who are support, genuinely supportive of us to call it out. I will never forget, I was in a situation once where someone who I like respected and worked with, a white woman, said something pretty uncool in a group situation, and it was another non-Black woman of color who said, even while I was still forming the words of what to say in response who was just like, that is not cool what you just said because of X, Y, Z reason, and you need to apologize right now because it's inappropriate. And the fact that I didn't have to be the one to be like, oh, well, don't love that you just said that in front of everybody was really powerful. And so I think that racism and sexism and all the isms is such a weird thing because it kind of festers... With this implication that we're never gonna call it out because it's not cool, it's not polite. You know, I have smiled and giggled through, through more racist, sexist comments than I care to relive. And I'll just will never forget Justice Jackson's confirmation and seeing that familiar look on her face of like, this again, I am at the pinnacle of my career, the top of my career. I have a stellar background. And this again, and so I just would have loved to have seen the Biden administration say what Justice Jackson, they kind of obliquely referenced it. I don't want to say they never said it, but they, I never heard an explicit acknowledgement of like, she is facing racist, sexist attacks and it is not OK. She would not be facing this if she was a white woman or a black man. She is facing them particularly because she is a black woman and it is racist and it is sexist and we understand it. We see it. She's you're not imagining it. And I think that that is part and parcel of having an inclusive cabinet. If you want to have the leadership of black women and women of color and people who are marginalized, like if you want all of our shine, you got to stick up for us. You got to you got to say the hard thing that you know we can't say explicitly. We really can't. If she had got up on that stage and said, Josh Hawley, you're being a you this is misogynor and I will not tolerate it. She would have never been confirmed, right? So she can't say that, but other people near her can say it. White people can say it. Biden can say it. Jen Saki can say it, but they didn't say it. And I, I just, I will never forget watching that. It really made an impression on me. And I guess this is part of it, right? This idea that marginalized people watching knew it and saw it and clocked it and nobody said anything. So we just had to feel it and suffer with her in silence. But yo, to the woman who is listening right now, to the to the black woman, to the woman, to the trans person, to the queer person, to the person who is from a working class background, you're not crazy. You're not imagining it. When you hear that thing that hits you in your in your gut, in your spirit, and you're like, damn, they're belittling me right now because of who I am. You really want someone. Uh, first of all, I'm with you. I've been there. I hear it. It's not cool. It's not okay. But you want someone to be the person who is going to say, yo, I heard that. I know what you're trying to do, and it's not going to work here. And we need our allies. This is where we really need our allies to be clear, Very to have very clear voices when you hear shit like this.
3: Hell yeah. And, you know, I understand the Biden administration has a lot of concerns. They're trying to balance and. It would be great if they could be better allies. Maybe they could. Maybe they can't. I don't know. Josh Hawley, (laughs) insurrectionist, (laughs) terrible human, uh, In a reasonable society, he would be in jail because he literally (laughs) tried to overthrow the government.
0: And then ran uh, away.
3: (laughs) And then ran away, like, flapping his arms. uh, (laughs) The worst. But I guess that's the nice thing about podcasts, right? Like, we don't have any of those concerns. So I'm glad we can talk about it here.
0: I'm glad we can talk about it here as well. Speaking of, like, talking about things and having nuanced conversations uh how did you like my transition
3: it's a it's a really good transition I mean <laughs> a little force but like we were in, a, in it pretty deep so <laughs> let's know, let's bring it back to a news story
0: after that intensity all I will accept is like high praise for that transition from you
3: you know what after all that you've been through the societal forces <laughs> Thank you. Thank that you. <laughs> transition was immaculate
0: I'll take it. You're exactly right. That is an appropriate response to that transition. So let's talk about this very weird piece in the Washington Post. So Jillian Brookell, who writes for the Washington Post's History Vertical, I need to be super clear. Jillian is someone whose writing I generally really respect, and I really respect Jillian as a journalist. Great writing. Like, I am not saying this to belittle... Jillian's record at all, but I do want to mention it. So she published a piece in the Washington Post called We Interviewed Harriet Tubman Using AI. It Got a Little Weird. They used the online educator Khan Academy's new artificial intelligence learning tool Conmigo, which enables users to have live chats with dozens of simulated historical figures like Abigail Adams, Genghis Khan, Winston Churchill, to interview Harriet Tubman. So essentially... When asked questions about her life and her work, the answers that AI Harriet Tubman, it mostly kind of sounds like she gave kind of stiffer versions of her Wikipedia entry. When she asks if Harriet Tubman was scared during her life, the AI Harriet Tubman can't really answer. It says, it is important to remember that I am an AI simulation of Harriet Tubman, and I am here to share my experiences and knowledge with you. What are some challenges you have faced in your own life? And how have you found the courage to overcome them? Uh, She tries to get the A.I. Harriet Tubman to answer questions about modern day issues like critical race theory. And A.I. Harriet Tubman does not really take the bait. There honestly really is not a lot more to this piece. I don't want to come down on the journalist here, but the Internet was just really not pleased about this piece. And to be frank, like I am kind of left scratching my head about this piece, too. Raquel has a lot of really thoughtful writing about history, but I don't feel like I get what the point of this piece was. It really feels like a throwback to all those pieces we were seeing maybe like two years ago about AI as kind of a parlor trick, you know, where it was like, oh, we made AI watch 100 episodes of Seinfeld and here's what they said as a Seinfeld script. These kind of like, yeah, parlor trick journalism And I think that we're all kind of over that. So it feels like a little bit of a throwback to an era that we've all kind of progressed from, particularly considering how this technology is really poised to disproportionately harm underrepresented people, Black women. And I also think a lot of people really rightly picked up on how uncomfortable it is to have a white journalist interviewing Harriet Tubman AI. Honestly, I'm not even sure why that hits me so weird. Um, Maybe it's because black women who are fighting for racial justice and freedom and autonomy are so underrepresented in legacy media. And so a journalist interviewing an AI version of that black woman just is a little bit funky. And yeah, I just, I don't even know why I'm so weirded out by this. and that the internet response was so weirded out by it, but Mike, what do you think?
3: I do find it super weird. Like, I guess I can maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt, see the value of having some sort of chatbot like this for, like, elementary school children to introduce them to the concept of Harriet Tubman. But for a journalist and, like, a grown person to be talking with it, like, we've talked so much this season on this show and as a society over the past couple of months about AI and like, that's not Harriet Tubman's voice. That's not speaking based on the memories and experiences of Harriet Tubman. It is speaking based on the large language model that is chat GPT uh, being trained on the, Corpus of like everything on the Internet that they were able to scrape uh, and trained by the engineers who taught it, who were like mainly white people, certainly with very different experiences than Harriet Tubman, the woman who lived through the 19th century. And so it's just like, like, what even is this? What like these responses beyond providing basic information like yeah she led enslaved people to freedom she was courageous she was an outdoors woman uh like the basic facts about her beyond that what is really being added here it's tempting to say nothing but it's not nothing right like the thing that is being added is the filter of Uh, the large language model and the corpus it was trained on and the people who trained it and like the engineers who turned the knobs and so it's it's not only adding nothing it's like filtering it through a bunch of tech built by white people and uh weird you know it's weird
0: it's just weird and you make a good point that this is filtered through a large language model like It's not ChatGPT, but I was just reading a report that ChatGPT went from correctly answering a simple math problem correctly 98% of the time to just 2% of the time, according to a study from Stanford. So these are not even models that are like necessarily giving us accurate information when it's simple math problems. Why would I then trust? Again, this was not, she was not interviewing it through ChatGPT, a different AI model, but Why would I then trust a A.I. interview version of Harriet Tubman when we know that that the biases and problems and flaws that are baked into these kinds of A.I. models are so are there, you know? And yeah, I just don't I just don't like it. Was this
3: a story about A.I. chatbots or a story about Harriet Tubman?
0: That's my thing. It's like, I don't understand the point of the story. Like there's not even, so it's just like this AI chatbot exists. It can simulate these famous people. I asked it to be Harriet Tubman. Here's what it said. There's not even a so what. So I just, I don't understand the point of the piece. I don't understand how it makes anybody understand AI better or Harriet Tubman better also unrelated, but side note, but I do want to mention, you talked about Harriet Tubman as an outdoors woman. Thank you for that. I consider myself an outdoors woman because I I do my fair share of camping and hiking and like pooping in holes. And when people who don't know are like, oh, I'm surprised that you're a Black woman who enjoys the outdoors, Harriet Tubman is always my um, my beacon that like, People don't think of her as an outdoors woman, but she absolutely was an outdoors woman and, like, an icon in the space. And it pleases me that you remember her for that because I feel like she doesn't get the shine that she deserves as an outdoor, a Black outdoors woman. From one Black outdoors woman to another.
3: Yeah, uh, people should know. I, I don't think that I have, like, the, you know, special knowledge there. I feel it's, like, kind of common knowledge. Maybe not. I don't know. But, like, people should know. Yeah, she was... An outdoors woman. She was leading people through, like, legit wilderness, you know? And, like, they had to eat. They had to get water. They had to field-dress wounds.
0: Let's take a quick break. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways
2: at our back.
3: Okay, so Bridget, we've covered a lot of ground, but I have one question for you. What is it? What's Elon done now?
0: So we all know that Elon Musk came in and immediately asked staff at Twitter when he took over. Well, the same thing is happening all over the globe, including Twitter Africa, where former staffers say that Elon Musk has ghosted them even after agreeing to specific severance terms. This is from Larry Madoo from CNN, who did some great reporting on this issue. Larry found that Twitter staffers in Ghana accepted Twitter's offers to pay them three months worth of severance, the cost of repatriating foreign staff and legal expenses incurred during negotiations with the company, but they have not received the money or any further communication. This layoff happened just four days after Twitter opened their first physical office in Ghana, and many of the staffers moved to Ghana from other African nations and depended on their jobs at Twitter to support their legal status in the country. The last communication they had with Twitter was in May when they were first let go. So in the United States, Elon is doing the same nonsense, you know, letting staffers go, not paying severance, but at least there is some movement, right? There are, you know, some movements of agreements or communication or at least lawsuits But Africa staffers say there have been crickets. This was really heartbreaking to hear from the piece. Twitter was non-responsive until we agreed to the three months because we were all so stressed and exhausted and tired of the uncertainty reluctant to take on the extra burdens of a court case. So we felt we had no choice but to settle. This is what a former Twitter employee told CNN. When CNN reached out for comment, they got Twitter's new auto response, a poop Emoji, which tells you how much Elon cares about these staffers. So I think this really mirrors the relationship that tech has had with the global South for a while, more broadly, where African labor and talent is used, extracted, and then discarded without much care or intention. But specifically, I think that for Elon Musk, this is the person who Elon Musk's own father says that he funded his entire career from a Zambian emerald mine. I think that Elon Musk is somebody who just sees the global South as a resource that he can just extract labor and capital and talent from and then just discard it when he's decided that he's gotten all that he can from it. And yeah, that's what Elon Musk has done now.
3: Yeah, or not done.
0: Yeah, just pay your bills. Like, nobody likes paying their bills. I don't like paying my bills. But just pay your bills. Like, you owe this money. You agreed. Like, I think the four days after opening this office, people moved to Ghana for these jobs and then laying them off and then ghosting them. Ghosting is their words, by the way. That's like a very specific word to use to be like, yeah, we have not heard from them. People have bills to pay, families to feed. Elon Musk, you're supposed to be a billionaire. What the fuck is going on?
3: It's so Trumpy. The parallels between him and Trump get stronger every day of just like not paying people. Like, and pretending that that's some kind of savvy business move, like some innovative It's Like, yeah, I'm just going to have people do work for me and tell them I'm going to pay them and then like not pay them.
0: And I hate how we have a tech press in this country that really supported that, where it's like, oh, Elon Musk has a savvy new way to cut costs. It's called squatting. <laughs> it's called not paying the bills that you have racked up. Yo, I could do that. I don't think anybody would call it, like, innovating or, like, groundbreaking (laughs) if I just didn't pay my rent. Of course it's going to cut costs.
3: (laughs) I don't know when it became, like, a woke snowflake position to, like, pay people what you owe them.
0: Yeah, you PC liberal baby. You pay your bills. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Real men just, like, skip out on the bill. Don't you know that?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, real men make promises and then don't follow through.
0: Okay, so one last story, we gotta go to Finland because I love this story. So I am not somebody, even though I make a tech podcast, I we were just talking about this earlier. I'm not somebody who considers myself sort of stuck on my phone. I actually like having my phone buried in the bottom of my bag and then I forget about it and then I have 15 unread texts and I'm like, oh shit, my phone. Well, I really need to take a vacation to Finland. Many mental health experts agree that taking a break from your phone and social media, sometimes called digital fasting, can be good for you. People are not meant to be glued to screens all the time. And even a short digital fast can be useful to improve our well-being and help relieve symptoms of anxiety and depression. This is according to Terry Mustonen, a psychologist quoted in The Independent. This is because Finland's national park system took all of that advice to heart when crafting the new policies for the island of Ukol a beautiful island wilderness east of Helsinki, the park encourages all visitors to leave their cell phones on shore or keep them in their pockets during the visit to their island in an effort to get people to connect more with nature and themselves. Now, I love this idea. I think it's notable. And I think it's notable that it's happening in Finland, the country that kind of arguably invented cell phones. And it is a recognized leader in technological innovation and consistently ranks at the top of happiest countries on earth. So they got to be doing something right. If they're like, oh, keep your phones in your pocket. And also we're really happy. That can't be happenstance. That's got to be connected, right?
3: Yeah, they know what they're doing. They're doing something right. They're doing a lot of things very right.
0: So we actually, believe it or not, have quite a few listeners in Finland. I check the charts all the time and I have a we are often doing quite well in the Nordic countries. I have a little bit of a love affair with the Nordic countries. I've never been, but I fantasize about going. So if you end up going to this island, let us know. However, wait till you're back wherever you live. Do not do not tweet us from the island. Email us from the island because we don't want you to get kicked out. And Matt Selen from Visit Kotka Hamina Tourism Board in Finland, if you are listening, I would love to talk to you about how it's going I love the idea about a phone-free visit. When I I do a lot of travel and when I travel, I do have this weird mental thing of like I got to get the best pictures to display where I am. But when I'm having the most fun, my phone is buried in my bag and I'm not thinking about it. Although when I travel, I am like I got to get like one good picture and then I can put it away. But I love the idea of just like no, be in the moment, enjoy this beautiful the natural beauty of this island and like You will have those memories and cherish them. You do not need to photograph them. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I think it's so interesting that this, yeah, is happening in Finland, a country that did invent the cell phone. I, like, did a little bit of research earlier today. And, uh, like, the first cell phone-like patent was from a Finn in, like, 1919 or something like that. Like, way back before any of us were thinking of cell phones. And... You know, then after that, there was a whole lot of 20th century in between. But they, uh, you know, with like Nokia and there was like this, I forget the exact name, but like a Nordic uh, cell phone consortium or something like they really led the development of cell phones. So they've been right there. They continue to be leaders in technological innovation. And yet they're also leaders in like turn off your phone and leave it behind. And I just like love it. And it totally makes sense that like they get tech and they also get how to coexist with tech and live a life that like feels good and nourishes people. So uh yeah, I'm kind of like fanboying a little bit. Uh I do kinda of want to go to this island.
0: I would love to go to this island and tune in to Mike's spin-offs miniseries, the Nordic cell phone tech connection on iHeart Radio <laughs>
3: Well, it's funny you say. No, I won't go into. It.
0: Wait, do you have like a like a mini series? I don't know about coming out about Nordic cell phones.
3: No, I mean, I just I just laid it all out right there. It was like thirty
0: seconds of <laughs> Your material. You're tight five oh. on how how they <laughs> how, how they invented cell phones. I love it. I love it. Okay, so for folks listening, obviously, I am the kind of person to whom. An island where you don't bring your phone sounds kind of cool. I'm kind of into it. But what do you think? Would you go on vacation to an island that had this kind of no cell phone policy? Maybe you're the kind of person who thinks, oh, don't tell me to live in the moment. Don't tell me to be present. If I paid for my hotel, if I paid for my tickets, I'm going to enjoy my vacay how I see fit. And if that's 100 selfies in my bathing suit that I also bought for vacation, so be it. Uh, Or maybe you think this sounds like a cool time. Does this phone-free island sound like a fun place to vacation? Let me know. Mike, as always, thank you for going through these stories with me. Yeah, Bridget,
3: thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Uh, these are such important stories, uh, some more important than others, but uh, it feels great to be part of it, and I hope the listeners are enjoying And I also hope that the listeners felt like my microphone was better this time, because uh <laughs> last time... <laughs> Long story short, I had a good microphone connected. I was recording off a wrong microphone. You ever plugged in Zoom and it like didn't use the right microphone? Uh, I feel bad. I feel like our listeners deserve a good quality audio experience. I
0: I, I made a joke about it earlier tonight and you were like, oh, I made one mistake. You're going to mention it every time.
3: You've mentioned it like every day since last week. We got like a couple of comments. I get it. I was using the wrong microphone. Hopefully it sounds better this time. This is
0: like the time I left my jacket at my grandmother's house once, like 30 years ago. And my parents today, to this day, are like, oh, make sure you have everything. And I'm like, it happened once. You mentioned it every time.
3: That's how I feel. But I just want our listeners to know that they do deserve high quality audio. And that is what we aspire to and uh not gonna happen. Just remember
0: to to turn your mic on. It doesn't matter if it's sitting next to you if it's off.
3: You're oversimplifying (laughs) but like the listeners don't need to hear about it. All right
0: all right well thank you for listening. We apologize for the tech error. Mike apologizes for the mic error last week. I didn't do anything wrong. My mic sounded fine. Uh yeah it was a
3: mic error. It
0: was a mic error. (laughs) A mic error and a mic error. Thank you for listening. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangody.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangody.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unboss Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
2: your podcasts.
0: Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point.